Welcome to Chan's The Man Apologetics, a podcast for training followers of Christ to see reality through the lens of the biblical worldview. I'm your host, Chan Heron. Topics include Christian doctrine, apologetics, special guests, and of course, lots of fun. Let's get started. Have you ever told a lie to get out of trouble? (laughs) Who hasn't done that? We can all remember stories of our childhood where we got our, we got caught with our hand in the cookie jar per se, and we invented a tall tale to try to get ourselves out of trouble. It's just a part of human nature. But have you ever told a lie to purposely get into trouble? I mean, I'm not talking about taking the heat for somebody else. I'm talking about inventing a lie to get yourself into trouble. Nobody does that. People embellish their resume or they embellish stories about themselves to make themselves look good. And our second installment of the reliability of the New Testament, did you know the New Testament is embarrassing? It is very embarrassing. Well, what, Chan, what do you mean embarrassing? Why would you say that? When historians are trying to piece together credible narratives, one thing that they look at is known as the principle of embarrassment. And the principle of embarrassment is based on the notion that people don't make up stories to make themselves look bad. They make up stories to make themselves look good. And when you look at an account and it contains evidence that's potentially damaging to the characters involved, then that's evidence that the testimony or the narrative is credible. That's what we look for. Did you know that the Bible has many embarrassing details? They are embarrassing details about Jesus. There's some embarrassing details about the disciples. And that's what I'd like to look at today. The principle of embarrassment. The E in our vowels, A-E-I-O-U, the E stands for embarrassing details. First, I would like to start with uh, some of the embarrassing details about Jesus. Let's take a look at these. In Mark chapter 3, we see this, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Okay, this is his own family, Jesus' own family saying he's out of his mind. Now, this is really embarrassing because if you're making up a story about this Jesus character and you won't really you, you really want people to follow him, why would you have the people that know him the best say he's out of his mind? This doesn't really help the case unless Mark is actually being consistent in trying to record exactly what happens. 
Uh, a lot of people don't know that Jesus had several um, brothers. And in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we see this. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Okay, so we see that Jesus had four brothers and he had several unnamed sisters. But in John 7, look at kind of the mockery that we see. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacle was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, I get it. I have two brothers. One of them's passed away. One of them's still living. And we made up stuff all the time. And if my brother ever came to me and said, look, I'm God, I would be like, what? Do something. No, you're not. Now, again, if you're trying to make up a story where you want people to really like this Jesus character, you you want his family to kind of like him too. So why would the gospel writers invent a story to make this Jesus character look bad when he's supposed to be the savior of the world? Well, his brothers really thought that he was out of his mind. That's what they uh, we're, we're, we're thinking that's what they, what it was recorded in John 8, 48, the Jews answered him and said, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon possessed? So he's called out of his mind. He's not believed by his own brothers. He's called demon possessed in John 8 in John chapter 10, verse 20. We said he's, he, he is raving mad. Why listen to him? Other people just, they call, he, was, he was a madman. He was called demon-possessed. This is not the adjectives that you want described for the Messiah. And yet there they are, as plain as day. And then... He is crucified despite the fact that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. We get that from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. So these, these things were recorded about Jesus of Nazareth, and there's others. These are just a few. So this brings a very interesting question. Why? Would the gospel writers invent something like this if they were trying to pass on a story about a character who who uh, they want people to worship or they want people to follow? This doesn't make any sense. It seems like they would say his family worshipped him, his brothers saw the miracles he had done. The Pharisees marveled at his power. But that's not what we see. That's not what we see at all. It's just the opposite. Maybe the gospel writers are recording faithfully what happened because they're trying to be accurate. Now, not only are there 
embarrassing details about Jesus, but there's definitely some embarrassing details about his disciples. The gospel writers record some of the things that the disciples did, which is not very flattering. So, for example, the disciples are kind of dim-witted. The gospel writer John, in John 12, verse 16, reports this, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Why are the disciples portrayed like this if this story is made up? Maybe this is really how they were, and John is just faithfully recording this. Did you know that they are uncaring toward Jesus? They fall asleep on Jesus twice. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his arrest, he begs them to stay awake and pray with him because he's, he's, he's anxious, he's, he, he's nervous, he's stressed. And what do you know? His best buddies fall asleep on him. Also, Peter, who I can kind of identify with Peter. Peter's one of these guys that really kind of shoots his mouth off without thinking. Um, in Mark chapter 8, Peter is called Satan. Now, Peter is is rebuking Jesus because Jesus ta- talked about his, predicted his death. The reason why Peter rebuked him is because their view of a Messiah was not one that died. The Jewish view uh, of a Messiah was a political leader who would rescue Israel from Roman rule and set up Israel as an independent state. There was no teaching in first century Judaism that included a dying Messiah. And so in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about all this, and Peter rebuked him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now, if you don't know this, the Catholic Church sees Peter as the very first pope. And he is the main leader of the the Catholic Church. Now, why... If Mark is making up a story, would he write down this information about Peter being called Satan by Jesus? Do you think Mark made this story up? Or do you think since Mark probably heard Peter tell this story over and over that Peter was just being honest and Mark recorded this? That seems fairly likely, but they are also cowards. Peter denies Jesus three times after bragging that he would be the only one that stood with with Jesus. We also see that the disciples run away. They are hiding 
for fear of the Jews. Guess who's the brave ones? Guess who it is that instead of showing fear and hiding, they display bravery. It's the women followers. They're the ones who discover the empty tomb first. As a matter of fact, if you look in all four Gospels, the women are the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Now, if you don't know how embarrassing this is to Christianity, you should look at or you should know the view of women in first century. Their testimony was not considered reliable in a court of law. As a matter of fact, a woman's testimony was on par with that of a thief and a robber. So if you're making up a story and you want to get a lot of mileage out of it, you don't have as your primary witnesses women in the first century. And yet, that's exactly what we have. The first century, uh, the, the, the women, a group of the women followers that Jesus had are the ones that discovered the tomb. And in Luke's account, when they come back and they tell the other disciples about it, this is found in Luke chapter 24, here's, here's what is said. When the women came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. That is recorded right there in Luke 24. Now, why is it that Luke doesn't record and the men demonstrated their great faith and they jumped up and they believed the women? No, that's not what happened. Uh, Dr. Frank Turek likes to tell the story of when he was demonstrating this or teaching this at a church and uh, a woman came up to him afterwards and said, I know why women discovered the empty tomb and why they are primary witnesses because God wanted to get the word out. And, and that's pretty good. I remember at one church, I was teaching about embarrassing details and there was this older gentleman came up to me and he said, there's three ways to get information out fast. And he said, telegram, telephone, tell a woman. And what we see here is Jesus elevating the status of women in the first century. It's not the disciples that are the brave ones. It's the women. So when you put these together, are the gospel writers inventing a story? If they are, they're not doing a very good job because they record how they record these embarrassing details, and we've only scratched the surface. There's more in the Old Testament. From this, we can gather. The gospel writers seem to be trying to accurately report what happened because of the principle of embarrassment. So what you have to decide is, is this credible? Would someone invent a story to make themselves look bad? Or would someone invent a story to make themselves look good? 
when you couple the embarrassing details in the New Testament with the archaeological support, then you have credible evidence that the gospel writers are faithfully trying to record what really happened, and they're not embellishing stories. Thank you for listening to Chan's The Man Apologetics, a podcast aimed at promoting the Christian worldview. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider sharing with a friend. Until next time, I'm Chan Heron.